0: Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF Store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF Store product or service. Visit ETFStore.com for more information.
2: All right, fantastic show this week. I want to thank our two sponsors, NASDAQ and Invesco. Joining me will be Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. And I'm really excited about this. Tom has a deep background in financial education. He was previously president of Investopedia. And one of the areas he currently spends a lot of time focusing on is evaluating data from financial advisors. So this is data gleaned from webinars and surveys and, and web traffic. And if you think about this, what's interesting about this data is it provides a unique perspective on what advisors are actually doing. Uh, in other words, the mainstream financial media might be pushing different narratives. I, I think we all know that, we see it every day, but what are advisors actually doing with their actions when they go online? Well, Tom sits in a unique spot where he can provide a window into that. And so we're going to hear where some of the biggest disconnects are between what you're hearing in the financial media right now and what advisors are actually doing, and ultimately how Tom and ETF Trends seeks to deliver content and education around that as well. So really look forward to that conversation. Also joining me this week will be Nick Cherney, head of exchange-traded products at Janus Henderson, who he's going to go in depth on a segment of the market that probably sends a shiver up the spine of some people. And I would say for others, you simply may not be familiar with this. And that's collateralized loan obligations, CLOs. And yes, Janice Henderson does offer an ETF here, the Janice Henderson AAA CLO ETF, which launched last fall, now has about $120 million in assets. But this should be good. Nick's going to make the case for considering CLOs as part of your bond portfolio, including why they're particularly interesting given concerns around rising rates and inflation right now. And if you do fall in the camp of not being overly familiar with CLOs, don't worry. Nick's got you covered on that as well. We'll go through all of the basics of what I think is a pretty interesting market. And then to close this week, another excellent guest, Jillian Del Signor head of ETFs and indexing at Flex. She's going to talk ETF distribution, so how ETFs ultimately end up in investor portfolios. And there are few, if any, who understand this area as well as uh, Jillian. There's just a lot more to this topic than meets the eye. So we'll look at some of the current trends she's seen, including uh, ETF model portfolios. The Financial Times just had a great piece on this last week, really a huge distribution channel for ETFs. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate NateGeraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends' Tom Hendrickson.
1: Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights.
2: Tom, great having you on the podcast. Really excited about our new partnership here.
1: Nate, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. How are you today?
2: I'm doing fantastic. And again, I'm just really looking forward to this conversation because of the unique perch that you, you sit in. And we are going to look at the markets through this prism of advisor data you have. But I thought before we do that, I actually want to spend a few minutes on your background because my guess is not everyone in the ETF space is familiar with you and you will be joining me fairly regularly on this podcast. So I just love for listeners to get to get to know you a little bit better. And probably the best place to start is, Tell us more about your background in the world of finance and media prior to becoming involved with ETF Trends, and then we'll certainly get to the uh, ETF part of the story.
1: Yeah, happy to, Nate. Uh, thanks for the opportunity again. So so rolling back the clock all the way to the early 2000s, I've been in and around the web and finance and data um, right coming out of the sort of the, the, the rubble of the dot-com bust. And, and what happened was I was... Uh, Taking a finance degree, I'm calling you from up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, Nate, and uh, I was going to the University of Alberta, school record up here, doing a business degree with a major in finance, and two of the the folks that were also in that program in the summer of 1999 had started a little website called investopedia.com. And that was predicated on digitization of the jargon related to the financial markets. And, and we all know that uh, part of the financial markets are built upon understanding how to, how to speak the language and, and peer through some of the things that, uh, you know, you need to understand and, and things that, you know, maybe are almost in place just to uh, obfuscate or to confuse people. So they actually started, you know, two, my two business part. They they became my business partners, Corey Wagner and Corey Jansen, and they started writing terms and, and putting them online and for free and making sure that they were exposed to the public in a way that was really easily searchable. and And this was back before, you know, Google was the predominant search engine for organic search. These are these are Yahoo days. and And so. Uh, I was lucky enough, uh, we were in a little shoebox office in, in downtown Edmonton to, to, join those guys, um, late 2002, so they'd been doing it for a while, but it was still sort of nascent, and, uh, we just continued to build content and, and try to educate the masses around, um, you know, their financial lives, how to speak to speak, and, and really, you know, focused on, on great content, and that's sort of how I got my, my start in the business. Um, for years we did that and and we did it really from a position of, of anonymity and you know we were 20 somethings early on uh... you know we we weren't you know throwing on suits and, and traveling back and forth to boston and New york and chicago and, and some, some of these larger financial hubs we were really just focused on on creating great content and letting the the web traffic be the uh... determinant of success and and lo and behold it was a period of time when um... Financial uh, literacy and education mattered, uh, just as it does now. But but there was a lot of people who felt a lot of pain coming out of the dot-com bust. And so web traffic grew, uh, the business grew, uh, and we were lucky to get an education there for for a number of years. Prior to selling it to the Forbes family of the uh, Forbes Media Heritage, um, Forbes.com, the magazine and such, Uh, in, in the summer of 2007, and then continued to uh, operate it up here in, in Edmonton for you know a few more years after that. So that's that's really kind of where I cut my teeth.
2: Well, and it's amazing to me because you look at Investopedia today. I feel like that really is still the go-to spot for financial terminology, and I, I feel like that site covers literally every facet of, of finance and investing. So it's amazing, you know, where that started and what it's become today. So okay, so if we fast forward. How did you get involved in the world of ETFs, and then what ultimately led you down this path towards ETF trends and ETF database?
1: Yeah, so so back to, you know at sort of the, the 2007 to 2009 time period, and and you know Nate, you would know your ETF history as well as anyone. We're talking low hundreds of billions of dollars within the ETF wrapper uh, on U.S. listed exchanges. So you know, really kind of early days. But what we started to see, even, even at Investopedia, was a, was a sincere interest in the product and, and the innovation that it provided, and ultimately a runway for um, proliferation of product using that wrapper as a different delivery mechanism. And so, you know, I didn't have uh, spreadsheets worth of data. It was more anecdotal and just seeing where the web traffic on Investopedia was and the investor interest. And I mean all types of investors, retail investors, financial advisors, Um, even some early interest from the institutional group. And so I I knew that, um, you know, or I I guess I I bet that that there's going to be a growth within that ETF wrapper, and I really started educating myself about it and and where it could go. And so um, my next iteration of of kind of my online life was to go, rather than an inch wide, a mile deep on all these educational topics, is is to go – or sorry, an inch wide, inch deep, a mile wide. I, I was going to go an inch wide, a mile deep on certain topics within the broader financial sphere, and, and ETFs was one of them. Based on some of that early data that I saw, and was able to, um, you know, get involved in ETF database in the uh, very early parts of 2012, knowing that it was about five or six hundred billion dollars at that point in time. But the growth rate was phenomenal, and it looked like there was a lot of runway there. So a lot of the same things that i would learned uh through the investopedia experience content creation data analysis uh you know getting smart around how to um use that data to produce more content in intelligent ways you know that that was applicable to the world of etfs and then i'd say the overlay and and a pretty big shift was the move from more of a individual investor focused to a financial advisor focus, where the advisors were really embracing that product. And and I think that there was, you know, early writing on the wall that it was going to be a core component of their their larger portfolio construction, and, um, you know, was able to to get uh, involved in ETF database um, and and start
2: building from there. Well, and that's actually the perfect segue, because you heard me mention at the top, I, I do think that you currently sit in a really unique position because you do interact with financial advisors in so many different ways. And clearly what that does is it provides some very interesting data points in terms of what advisors are actually doing, right? What they truly care about. Can you talk more about that just in terms of of this data that you have access to, where it comes from, um, how you view your role in using that data to provide value and sort of just the overall um, you know, core mission of ETF trends and ETF database.
1: Yeah, happy to, Nate. And really, it's a testament to our team and, and the work that's been put in, you know, not over quarters or even years, but but literally decades. So in early 2019, um, I partnered with Tom Lydon, who had been building ETF trends um, since 2005, you know, a real pioneer within the industry. And and we brought ETF Database and ETF Trends under one roof, and we started building out a a team to support uh, this connectivity that we had with the advisor community with the thesis that, you know, being intelligent about data collection, collecting a lot of data, and then using that as an input to our content creation process. And and I mean content, you know, as as broadly as possible. Articles, videos, uh, podcast content, long-form, short-form, virtual events, long events – and and the like. And and so what the team has done over the last number of years is really created this engine where you're right, we do have a unique, um, you know, trusted relationship with that advisor community where they tell us what they're looking for through their implicit actions. And so, you know, we host a lot of events. There's a lot of explicit data where people are, uh, you know, filling in email addresses and first name and last name and what firm they're at and, and that sort of thing. And then we're able to learn, you know, through their journey um, where they're most interested in and, and how that's changing over time. So, so in the back end on ETF Trends and d- Database, we've categorized all of our content into things that, you know, uh, are, you're able to discern where interest is, is elevated or, or maybe where it's falling. And, and happy to share a few of those insights, Nate, as you can imagine. Sometimes it, it maps to the narrative where advisors are looking. And and sometimes it doesn't. And and I think either is important for for us certainly to understand so that we can deliver value to that advisor, because that's what they're telling that they want to um, engage in.
2: Well, let's talk more about that, because I'm absolutely fascinated to hear about some of these areas where maybe there are differences between what you're seeing and some of the common narratives out in the mainstream financial uh, media. So, I, I mean, given what you are seeing from financial advisors right now, what stands out to you?
1: Yeah, well, the one interesting thing, Nate, was, you know, there's this raging debate about where we're at within um, what's going on with inflation. You know, is it transitory? Is, is Is it here to stay? You know, what are sort of the tail risks of what that could look like go forward? And our advisor community was, was interested in that and was concerned in that going all the way back to last summer. So if you look at things like commodities, um, tips products, um, you know, some of the things that are more sort of proxies for uh, an inflation-rich environment, financials, alternatives, things like that, advisors were engaging in those types of uh, pieces of content across ETF Trends and ETF Database all the way back to last summer, and that told us something interesting because whether it's transitory or not, advisors were really interested and wanted to get up the educational curve and understand what that might mean if inflation did take root and and if it was not sort of this fleeting phenomenon. And so we wanted to make sure that we were producing content and and providing the resource and giving them the educational tools for them to drill into that topic in a way that um, I think was really receptive to what they were telling us through what they were looking at. It's kind of like this, Nate. You're a Netflix subscriber. I am. I'm sure the family uses Netflix. Yeah. We're, you know, avid. Avid Netflixers, as you could imagine, with the with the young kids, and and so when I go to the home screen of Netflix, they're really really great at at figuring out what I'm interested in based on some of the things that I've looked at in the past and and what my interests are, and and they take a crack at putting those things that are front and center for me to drill into, and in a similar vein, we're trying to do that at ETF Trends and ETF Database, where we want to make sure that. Um, that relationship that we have with the advisor, we're listening to them, and we're creating more content about the things that matter to them, not related to things that we, we think they want to talk about. Certainly, there's a, there's a bit of a, uh, you know, an art to that, but making sure that we're responsive to the things that are most important is, is very important to us, and, and is sort of core to the, the entire themes
2: ethos. I find this absolutely fascinating. What I'm curious about, I mean, how does how does this process begin without getting too tactical? So let, let's stay on the inflation topic. Is it advisors starting to search for GLD, right, the Spider Gold Trust, or PDBC for commodities or TIP? And you start seeing that sort of data and then effectively start tailoring content because you know that is what advisors are interested in, in learning more about and, and, and doing some research on. I mean, is that how that process evolves
1: yeah. In a nutshell, Nate, the answer is yes. Um, and, and, and you've described it really well. You know, the one thing that uh, is tough to overemphasize is the amount of work that, you know, across our team has gone into getting in a position to be collecting that type of data. You know, so putting up a web page that, that ranked really well, you know, a huge percent of our traffic comes from Google organic search. That's the number one jumping off point that the financial advisor community is do, starting their research. And we're finding more and more that advisors are going from uh, discovery to research to product selection all within the digital realm and so we want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time so you could think about a query on google organic search where you know you type into your google bar commodity ETFs well we want to have the best page on the web related to commodity ETFs well that starts a data collection opportunity how many hits is that page getting and then from there you would have a list of all the commodity-related, um, you know, QSIPS or ETF tickers, like GLD and others, where people would then drill down. And then from there, we want to make sure that we're also providing, uh, you know, a bit of a buffet of other types of content around that topical category, ranging from webcasts to long-form white papers, short-form content, video content, etc., and all of those. Um, pieces of data are, are interesting and, and give us an opportunity to learn about what the advisor is engaging in.
2: Well, and I just love this because to, to what you were alluding to earlier, there is a lot of debate right now around whether something like inflation is transitory. But here we have advisors that are proactively and and have been proactively looking for potential inflation hedges in a portfolio. Again, actions speak louder than words. And so you have these these narratives out in the mainstream financial media. But what are advisors actually doing? I, I just love that angle. Is there anything else that stands out to you just in terms of where maybe there's a narrative out in the mainstream financial media, but that's different than what you're seeing in terms of advisor actions?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll give you I'll give you two more, Nate, and one one is a little bit um, a bit, bit disconnected from a broader narrative, but I think makes sense, and then another is is relates to a narrative that that has taken hold, but is really important. I think the longer term ramifications. So, the the uh, interest in equities, you know, continues to be exceptionally strong despite the fact that there's, there's a broad-based group of folks out there, especially the CIO community, talking about how overvalued the equity market is,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the, the reality is advisors, um, through their actions and what they're looking at and where they're investing, uh, continue to look to the equity market to provide you know, that return just based on, on the dichotomy between the equity markets and the bond markets and, and where they think that the, the real return is going to be there. And so we're, we're seeing that in a big, big way. And then the other one is related to crypto, and it's no um, shock, I'm sure, to anyone that the interest in crypto is huge. But the reality is, is that I think that there's a shift in, in um, the mindset of the advisor, where there was probably some who were quite skeptical about it, but they're now getting up the educational curve, probably somewhat driven by you know conversations with clients, but also just just so that. Um, You know if the one to three percent allocation to the crypto market you know becomes more of a reality in the coming years uh they they need to understand it and they need to be able to communicate it and so we've seen over uh, a 10x an order of magnitude of interest in the in crypto related content in the first quarter of 2021 versus the first quarter of 2020 from the advisor community
2: well i find that really interesting because if and when we get a Bitcoin ETF, I'm going to go on record and say that's going to vault up all of your your data rankings at ETF Trends and ETF Database. It'll be the most searched area that you have on the site. Well, one note too, I think about the uh, the equities that you mentioned is just that that advisor interest still in the equity markets despite some of these calls of, of the market being overvalued. We're seeing that in ETF flows, right? I mean, we're on we're on track for record flows in in 2021 and stock ETFs have been leading the way there. Uh, Tom, we're going to have to leave it there. I I really enjoy this. Uh, Certainly look forward to having you back on the podcast soon. Again, really excited about this this partnership with ETF Trends, but thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks, Nate. We couldn't be more excited. I appreciate the time, and, and we'll talk to you soon.
2: That was Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. All right, my next guest is Nick Cherney, head of exchange-traded products at Janus Henderson, who currently offers six ETFs, over $4 billion in assets. That includes the Janus Henderson AAA CLO ETF. has a great ticker, JAAA. That launched in October of last year, and it's what we'll be spotlighting this week. Uh, Nick is now on the line with me from Colorado. Nick, it's a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time.
3: Hey, Nate, great to be here.
2: All right, so my sense is, when investors hear CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, I feel like they automatically start thinking back to CDOs and the global financial crisis, and they start having all sorts of bad flashbacks. So let's start with what a CLO is and, and what it isn't. So h- how do you like to describe these?
3: Yeah, I, I think you're right that uh, you know the CLO is you know, another one of these three-letter acronyms. And, uh, you know, investors, I think rightfully are a little wary of three-letter acronyms in finance. And so we certainly spend a fair amount of time kind of articulating the differences. But, but you know, CLOs are really a completely different animal uh, than CDOs. And, and really what it boils down to is that CLOs are, are just a way to take the leveraged loan market, the bank loan market, whatever you want to refer to it as, right, Which, which, as we know, is is a pretty major tool for small businesses across America to, to get funding. And it, and it takes those loans, um, preserves the floating rate nature of them, right, so some of the interest rate characteristics that, that are pretty beneficial uh, for, for a lot of folks, and, and really packages them up to enhance the credit quality. So we focus on the AAA portion of the stack, which is the, the, the highest portion of the, um, of the credit uh, profile, And and really what what that is doing is basically putting together a pool of of bank loans and then deferring or sort of reallocating payments in a priority fashion to enhance the credit quality. So what happens is when you buy a AAA CLO, really what you're buying is a pool of bank loans where you have priority on the cash flows uh, of those bank loans. And so, um, you know, I think there are some structural similarities to uh, other asset-backed securities. Uh, But the big difference is really uh, around, you know, kind of two things. Um, The the first one is that the structure has changed dramatically uh, since the financial crisis, what we sort of call CLO 2.0. So there's been a lot of enhancements made. And then the second is just the quality of the collateral. So uh, it's the the underlying loan market that you're using. and, And that's sort of, I think. Um, Evidences itself in the behavior of, of CLOs, which which have actually AAA CLOs have, have never had a default, even in the Great Financial Crisis. So going back now about 30 years, you, you've you've never seen a single AAA CLO default. So so they're a pretty robust product that's been around quite a long time. And 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 as you said, there's some similarities, but but pretty distinct from from those kind of um, more uh, you know I would say controversial uh, securitized products that that had problems back in
2: 08. And Nick, in terms of the the actual leverage loans or the bank loans themselves, can you talk a little bit more about exactly what these are? Because I've seen, are these typically below investment grade? Are they always floating rate? Uh, I I know that I've seen a lot of smaller companies tend to access these just because they can't access the bond market. Can you just talk more about the overall profile of, of leverage loans? Right.
3: Yeah. And that's important to understand, right? Because, you know, ultimately the collateral uh, behind CLOs is this bank loan market or, or you know, as it's sometimes referred to, the leverage loan market. And that's over a trillion dollar market, right? So it's really a very important way for smaller companies, as you point out, to, to get financing. And these are fully secured loans, right? But they, but they come with higher risk. And so the, the whole market is, you know, below investment grade, um, almost all floating rate.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and it really
3: is the mechanism where companies who cannot get sort of senior unsecured loans because of the size or the, or the, or the risk profile, um, they, they can't issue those bonds, and they need to, to get financing, and they need to access financing. And the bank loan market has has really become the primary mechanism for doing that. And it's become a popular area for uh, ETF investors as well, right? And, and, and the reason for that is because a lot of investors are willing to take on that credit risk, right? Sub-investment grade uh, risk in order to get the yields that are associated with that, which can be pretty pretty healthy, you know, 4 or 5% um, for the last couple of years. Um, And more importantly, I think for a lot of investors, they're getting that that floating rate exposure. And so the thing with the AAA CLOs is you're getting that same floating rate exposure. um, You're getting a, a little bit less yield than you would Um, obviously for for, for bank loans directly, but that's because you've you've taken away uh, most of that credit risk and moved from a, uh, you know, a junk bond type of product into a triple-A sort of product. And so, um, you know, I think that that bank loan market is very robust, growing, and as I mentioned, you know, it's over a trillion dollar issuance today.
2: And and so before we get to the ETF, if I could just sort of restate everything that you covered at a very basic level. Uh, Effectively, CLOs are comprised of these bank loans or leveraged loans and basically, there are these tranches of CLOs that are able to gain a AAA rating because they're pulling multiple loans together, right? So even though the individual loans and the CLOs themselves are below investment grade, this diversity of the CLO is what changes the overall rating characteristics. Do I have that correct?
3: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, so you know, like you said, the most important part is that it's a broad based basket of, of underlying bank loans, but then a really important component is that the way the CLO is structured? Is that if some of those bank loans start to default, not only are the payments from the remaining loans going first to the AAA stack, but it actually reallocates those payments. And so, you know, one way to think about this, which I which, which I think is sort of you know it's a little a little technical, but um, it is really kind of an important part of of how these work, is that you know the um, the, the the way to think about the, the likelihood of a default in let's say a triple a clo is what percentage of that underlying portfolio would itself have to default mm-hmm. right and we call that the credit support level and and in order for a triple a clo to default you would have to have 35 percent of the underlying companies be in what we would call continuous default meaning defaulting for over a year so that's an extremely high level and if you look at the, over the last 25 years in the larger kind of universe of bank loans, we've never achieved even half of that, including during the great financial crisis. So you would really need an extreme economic event where over 35% of this this market and these companies would be in default for over a year before you could see the beginning of a default in a AAA CLO.
2: And where do CLOs typically trade? Is it just over the counter like any bond? Well this is
3: really one of the most interesting things for us about about bringing this product out is that the, you know the CLO market is is really large right i mean it's it's over 700 billion dollars that's about a third of the muni market right the investment grade CLO market is larger than the investment grade uh, floating rate market for corporate securities but historically really until we launched this product that that market has only been available to large institutional investors because the CLOs do trade over the counter like like bonds but they tend to, try to trade in very large sizes, typically $250,000 increments. And so as a result, they've really only been accessed by very large institutional investors. That includes you know, mutual fund managers, um, you know, a lot of insurance companies, uh, you know, global uh, uh, institutions. And so what this is really doing is enabling you know, folks to trade a diversified basket of CLOs in much smaller increments. And so the challenge before was if you wanted to build a diversified portfolio, you needed to have a very, very large allocation to CLOs, considering your minimum piece size was typically around $250,000. So that's really restricted the distribution. But, but yes, they, they trade similarly to, to other bonds uh, on, a, on a par basis. Um, or discount basis, and and, and trade uh, over-the-counter with, with major banks and dealers.
2: No, it's a good point with an ETF now providing access to the CLO market, because this is, again, just another example of ETFs democratizing access to an asset class that was previously only available to I- institutional investors. And so let's talk more about the ETF itself, the Janus Henderson AAA CLO ETF. Again, ticker symbol JAAA. Uh, talk, talk about exactly what this holds and uh, how it's managed. I know it's an active ETF.
3: Yeah, it, it is an active ETF. I would say the 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 active portion really comes in around risk management. Um, so there's a universe of about 110 CLO issuers out there. We're benchmarked against uh, uh, an index of, of entirely AAA uh, CLO issuance. Um we currently hold about 46 positions we have uh, a lot of risk control in there it's a 15 percent cap on any given issuer Um, and really the core of what we're doing on the active side is that is that risk analysis that diligence and then we have one other component which is that we have 90 percent of the fund on initial purchases is triple a clos and then we have a 10 percent bucket that we can go as low as single a and really what we're doing is trying to identify those opportunities in the single a space where we think there is really the right risk-reward, hopefully to get us to a product that at the end of the day, net of fees, uh, using that 10% bucket, will give similar yield and return profile to a, to a direct exposure to AAA. So basically what we're doing is Trying to analyze risk, trying to improve the quality of the portfolio relative to the benchmark, and then hopefully offsetting our management fees, which start at 25 basis points, uh, by, by kind of very selectively allocating a small portion of the position into, or the portfolio, uh, into these single A positions.
2: I know yields obviously can move around a lot, but can you give just a, a, a general impression of what the yields on something like JAAA look like compared to other segments of the market? And then because these are, are floating rate, I'm assuming the, the effective duration is is pretty close to zero, correct?
3: Right, right. So, I mean, for us, this is really what finally brought, drove us to bring this product to market. It, it, AAA CLOs have historically yielded something like double the yield of comparable investment grade floating rate bonds, right? Corporate bonds. Mm-hmm. And so you see a huge amount of money and a lot of investors putting money into this investment grade floating rate space simply because it, it seems more familiar, right? Well, the the you know the investment grade market is about seventy five percent below AA, right? But yet is yielding less than half of a triple A product with the same duration, which as you mentioned is is close to zero, right? If you think about a three month reset a weighted portfolio is going to have about a month and a half of duration right on average and so very very low duration much higher credit quality and yielding about twice as much so today and again as you said it, it sort of moves around but if you look at the investment grade floating rate market let's call it 40 to 50 basis points you know triple a CLOs have been yielding around 110 to 120 basis points so currently as much as three times as much as that investment grade floating rate market and again kind of pretty systematically over the last four or five years, more than double the yield of the investment grade market.
2: Throughout our discussion here so far, I think you've done a good job of laying out some of the potential benefits of this ETF. But can you talk more about how you see investors using this ETF in a portfolio? Like, like, like where exactly does this fit? And, you know, perhaps lay out any additional benefits that we haven't covered yet.
3: Yeah, and we uh, happily, and, and we should definitely, you know, touch on the risks a little bit too, right? And, and and one of those things, which which I think for us was the 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 real threshold event to get us comfortable bringing this product out is around liquidity. So the underlying investment structure, you know, for a buy and hold investor in C in AAA CLOs is just incredibly robust, right? And I, I gave you some of the statistics and, and and a little bit of the kind of structuring that that makes it work that way. But but the, the one risk that that is you know i think has a lot of people uh, over the years have thought about is if you're not planning to hold that clo to maturity what about the liquidity what about the secondary market and so what happened really was that you know during the COVID crisis when we had pretty severe bond market dislocations the triple clo market really came into its own and in fact in in march and april was setting all-time records in terms of secondary trading volume um, and so, what we saw was that it was actually much more liquid than the investment grade and um, in corporate bond markets. And so, we got very comfortable with that that liquidity. But that remains, I would say, probably one of the most significant things to think about. And, and when and when we're doing the the management of this product and selecting uh, the CLOs we're going to own, that's one of the primary things that we're thinking about is identifying deals. Um, where, you know, we believe the liquidity will be as deep as possible. And then, of course, as your listeners are, are familiar with, there's some advantages of the, of the ETF structure that, 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 that help there. Um, but, listen, in terms of the, the portfolio uh, and where it fits, I think it's, it's, it's pretty interesting, right? There's, you know, there's a lot of concern around the potential for rising rates, and that is pushing people into floating rate uh, product. And really the two primary areas is either bank loans uh you know or investment grade floating rate corporate debt and so in both cases i think investment grade uh floating rate corporate debt you know it's it's hard for me to understand uh the advantage of that asset class over triple clo's because again you're getting lower credit quality the same duration and half the yield um in the case of bank loans you're at least getting compensated uh with much higher yields, but you're doing that at the, at the cost of, of, of credit. And so I think what we see is that people who want to maintain high credit quality right now, have concerns about you know overall corporate uh, credit exposures, uh, can, can get a higher credit quality, uh, maybe pairing that with bank loads while lowering duration. But really what we see this as is some people using it as a cash alternative to get enhanced yields over money markets um, with, with a triple A. Uh, rating. And then a lot of people thinking about pairing it with bank loans to get that same floating rate exposure, but but really bring down the the credit risk in the portfolio. Um, And, you know, you're looking at something like a 14% correlation to the ag. So it really is sort of this third bucket alongside your equity and fixed income portfolio, where you can manage duration down, still get some, you know, uh, meaningful yields, uh, you know, certainly relative to cash and cash alternative positions.
2: Briefly going back to the the risks or the potential risks you were talking about and and you were mentioning liquidity, I want to expand on that just a little bit because I feel like... Some investors, they look to bond ETFs, especially in the high-yield market, even some of the senior bank loan ETFs. And you always hear about this this, this mismatch in liquidity, right, that you have this highly liquid ETF wrapper, but the underlying's not quite liquid enough. Can you just talk more about the market depth here? Because, as you said, I mean, the CLO market has grown substantially, but it doesn't sound like you have any concerns that in a deteriorating credit market environment – that perhaps liquidity would dry up, you know, and we just had a test to that uh, last March with a COVID crash, which which you you mentioned, but can you just talk more about, you know, whether that could negatively impact the ETF?
3: Yeah, well, I think there's two things there, right? It's, it's frustrating to me, I think that there still is this misnomer out there about the ETF wrapper itself, and how that relates to liquidity of the underlying market. And so, because of the fact that these ETFs, you know, are, are not having to buy and sell bonds within the portfolio as a result of client flows, right? Those flows are coming through the creation and redemption process. And so that actually, in a lot of ways, makes the ETF wrapper more suitable for illiquid assets than a traditional 40-act fund, because what happens is the transactions, right? If, if, if a client wants to sell during an illiquid period, the cost of doing that is borne by that client, not by the remaining shareholders, like like would be the case in mutual fund. So in terms of the wrapper itself, I actually um, you know, I, I'm I'm a little disheartened that that many investors out there still kind of hold this idea that the ETF is somehow problematic when the underlying is slightly less liquid, when in fact it's really the other way around. In most cases the ETF is is a preferred wrapper relative to a mutual fund to gain access to less liquid securities. But all of that then of course boils down to the liquidity of that underlying market. And so I think um, what you said is true, right? On the one hand, yes, we we are very comfortable that the liquidity that was demonstrated during the COVID crisis, right? Much better behavior out of the CLO market in terms of increased liquidity um, spreads, et cetera, relative to what we saw in the corporate uh, side So, for example, many mutual funds were actually looking to CLOs to raise cash because it was just too hard to sell their corporate credit positions, right? So we're pretty comfortable that that market has become quite robust, but still, you know, it, bonds are less liquid in times of stress than than equities, for example, and so it is a big risk that we focus on. Um, And it's one of the core reasons that we think a product like this really needs to be actively managed is to think carefully about which CLOs we own. And people need to understand that you can have dislocations due to liquidity. So, for example, during the COVID crisis, you know, the AAA CLO benchmark sold off about 10 percent, which is a pretty significant move. Now, that fully recovered within, uh, I think, maybe a month and a half. Um, And so, you know, a lot of people would view that as as a buying opportunity because the underlying fundamentals – you know, of the CLOs themselves didn't change, but like the corporate credit market, um, you know, during times of stress, you can can certainly see short-term price dislocations in those underlying markets. Uh, we just got quite comfortable that the uh, stability of that market was more than robust enough for an ETF to be to be listed, and that's really why we brought the product
2: out. Nick, just a couple of minutes left here. You've given a few of your, I feel like, high-level thoughts on the bond market. But I I love, do you have any more detailed thoughts on the bond market as a whole right now? You you know, it's pretty interesting in that there's been a lot of inflation talk, but we've seen yields actually come back in recently. Any thoughts on, on what's been going on here?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I I guess we're what a decade of people saying that interest rates are going to go up soon, at least. Um, and you know, so right, so so it's a little hard to um, you know make predictions in that space. But what I what I will say is that you know uh, coming off the 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 COVID crisis, I think there was this dual concern around both credit and interest rate risk. Right, we we were facing this really kind of uncertain scenario where. Nobody really knew what would be happening with the economy. Um, a lot of concerns around, for example, bank loans um, and, and and those smaller companies and how they would fare. And then that was kind of coupled, you know, with, with this kind of ongoing concern around rising interest rates. Today, I think a lot of those uh, credit concerns have have been alleviated. We sort of see a pretty significant rebound in the economy. Um, I think people's comfort with the sort of stability of those underlying uh, loan markets has 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 gone up for sure. Um, but that's been led, of course, directly to this this fear of inflation. And and, and certainly, you know, the Fed's commentary um, has stoked that a little bit. And so what we really see today is um, an easing of concern around credit risks, but but potentially an increasing concern around inflation. And then, of course, the the the, the follow on effect of that, which would be rising rates. And so what we really see is a, a desire of for, for people to uh potentially pair something like this along with a with a bank loan product where they can kind of blend those two to, to to get a little bit lower risk on the on the credit side and 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 be prepared for that that inflationary environment but i think i think really it, it is inflation that everybody's concerned about um, and, and so regardless of how you build that portfolio certainly having a plan um and, and being prepared and well positioned should inflation uh come along and of course then rates rise but as you said um, you know, certainly in the near term or, or, or more, more recently, you know, the, the interest rates have, have uh, you know, defied that expectation.
2: Well, Nick, excellent perspective this week. Uh, I certainly wish you continued success with this AAA CLO ETF. Thank you for joining me.
3: Yeah, Nate, thank you. It was great talking with you.
2: That was Nick Cherney, head of exchange traded products at Janus Henderson. I'm now joined by Jillian Del Signore, head of ETFs and indexing at Flex, who if I had to describe them in a nutshell, they leverage technology and certainly their experience to help asset managers better distribute their products. And if you think about that in the context of ETFs, quite simply, they're helping ETF issuers get their products in front of investors. Now, Jillian's background in this area really speaks for itself. She was previously head of ETF distribution at J.P. Morgan, while their assets grew from less than a billion to over $30 billion. She's also been at iShares, Goldman Sachs, Federated Investors. She served in various capacities for women in ETFs. And I'm now very pleased to have her on the line with me from Chicago. Jillian, always great connecting. Thanks for joining me.
0: Nate, good morning. It's great to be with you again.
2: So my description of uh, Flexor, was that fairly accurate, or do you want to add a, a little bit of color?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. You're, you're, you're on the right track for sure. Um, we are a, you know, a B2B fintech company, right? We are, we're considered the industry's first resource and asset management platform. Like, we need more acronyms, right? The first RAM. Um, and essentially, we provide a completely modular approach um, to distribution resources and solutions when and as needed. Um, you know, and, that, and that's not just the human capital, right? You'll hear me say that a lot. It's data, media, services, solutions, strategy, corporate strategy, technology, um, and the solutions are really rooted in distribution. We can provide scale and flexibility, hence the name, um, to asset managers, including in the context of our conversation. You know, ETF issuers as they seek those distribution solutions, it can be turnkey, also all cart. Um, You know, I think it's important to, to take a step back and. You know, we'll talk about this, I think, a lot um, in the course of the conversation today, and I'm sure you're talking to a lot of folks about it, too. And that's really the impact that the regulatory changes in the ETF industry have had on new entrants, right? The, the ETF rule, the semi-transparent model approvals. Um, you know, as, as, a, as certainly an avid listener of this podcast, I know the conversations that you had around these topics and how it's brought down the barriers to entry, and it's made it so much easier for firms to come into the market and launch product, really innovative product, um, and we're seeing it, right? Uh, major, major um, influx of products into the market, but it's done nothing to solve for distribution. In fact, it's only made it harder, right? For issuers fighting for shelf space, advisor attention, um, and so these innovative strategies are out there. But the vast majority of ETFs, let us not forget, and Nate you've heard me say this many times, ETFs are sold, not bought, right? Um, there are certain exceptions. But the vast majority are sold, not bought, and distribution is just such a must, um, you know, as part of that go-to-market plan. And hiring sales professionals on your own is just not something that's always economically viable for everybody. Um, And even if you do hire one or two salespeople, you know, what impact are you having? Um, Are you working with the home office to get platform placement? Are you covering uh, the right advisors? Um, you know, so not to mention marketing technology, the data requirements that go into an effective distribution plan, it's just not an option. Um, so I was really excited to be able to come to Flex and um, be able to to run the ETF business and bring the solutions that we have into the ETF marketplace. So Well, well yeah, and as an uh,
2: example of what you do, I saw that back in April – Flex announced a strategic relationship with Vident, who, of course, they offer both their own ETF lineup. And then they're an enormous player in the ETF sub-advisory space with Vident Investment Advisory. I'm curious, I mean, like, what does that relationship look like? How how do you work together?
0: Yeah, it's so exciting. We're really excited. In fact, I know you had um, Amrita... on just a couple of weeks back, and, and I think she kind of teased at the end of her conversation with you that they were going to have an announcement <laughs> uh, coming, and this is, you know, we can bring it full circle today. Um, and for those listening, Umrita, you know, the president of Via Investment Investment uh, Investment Advisory, I would highly recommend that episode um, as she talks about the importance of, of ETF sub advisory. Um, Yeah, so, you know, we had been talking with um, Vidant on the ETF side, their ETF side. As you mentioned, they do run four ETFs of their own. Um, And we had been speaking with them about um, helping them with their distribution. And, you know, as we started to really think about that, I kept saying, you know, we kept talking with one another and saying, I think there's a there there, right? There's a there there. There's something here as we think about how we support the Vidant ETF, but how can we help the VIA clients as well, because distribution, as, as Amrita articulated so well, it's a key question that she inquires about when speaking with potential VIA clients, and it's so important to the success of any ETF. Um, and so we started talking about how were there ways that we could structure a partnership where they could provide, by Biden sort of anchoring um, what we call a sales pod, a sales team at Flex, how could they then provide those same resources to their clients? Um, at a relationship level. Um, So that's what we were able to execute on. And so for uh, VF current clients, as well as potential clients, they're able to leverage um, the flex relationship and get access to unmatched scale um, in distribution, not just the human capital, again, but the broader distribution resources that we can bring to the table. Um, And on the flip side, As Flex, you know, we're able, myself and my colleagues are able to uh, speak with our clients about the potential solutions that VIA might provide to them. Um, As more and more issuers are coming to market, their services, as she articulated, uh, are becoming more and more valuable. Um, And so the partnership has been incredibly powerful because it allows VIA to be kind of a true end-to-end solution from product idea to portfolio management and trading to distribution with the partnership
2: through Flex. So Jillian, let's talk more specifically about ETF distribution. And you begin to head down this path just a little bit earlier. But from my perspective, I still feel like the ETF industry is gaining momentum, right? You look at the number of new launches, the record flows, Uh, larger asset managers still entering the space. And I think really just the innovation overall, to me, I feel like the industry is mushrooming, what, nearly 30 years after the launch of the first ETF. And I think that's clearly good on one hand, but it's also really tough for ETF issuers because that means more competition. It's much harder to get your products in front of uh, retail investors and financial advisors. Can you talk about that uh, double-edged sword, specifically in the, co- in the uh, context of uh, ETF distribution?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think you make such a valid point, Nate. I think, you know, I've, I won't age myself until I guess I will. I've been in the ETF industry for, you know, over a decade and a half now and distribution for, for two decades. And it's amazing the change that's happened. And if I, if I sort of orient us around the ETF industry and what you said, um, it's so important. You know, I think a lot of people forget how long ETFs have been around. And those that think they're late to the game They're not as late as they think, right, because there's still a lot of new adopters of ETFs, both in the retail space and institutionally. You know, we could have a whole separate conversation on how model portfolios are changing the adoption and accelerating the adoption commercialization of ETFs. Um, But so there's still we're still very early innings of of the ETF uh, game, if you will. And, you know, I did a report earlier this year with um, my friends over at Blackwater Search um, about the changing landscape of ETF distribution. We interviewed over 30 heads of distribution and heads of ETF businesses to get their thoughts on how it's changed. And I'll orient us around two different things. One um, is that you know, there's some version of this hybrid virtual versus you know in-person is certainly here to stay. Um, you know, the days of flying across the country for one meeting are certainly behind us. Um, what we saw was an, an increased importance placed on things like providing resources. Um, You know, issuers that had the most success and continue to have the most success. Because let's be honest, COVID just accelerated change that was already coming. Um, You know, those that were having most success and continue to are those that are providing resources and research and portfolio construction, due diligence, support, education. Um, That's what people are looking for from ETF issuers as they look at the marketplace. You know, it gets it gets blinding sometimes the the number of products that are out there just in one asset class. And so they're looking at the issuers to provide that support and that due diligence there. And the other is data, right? The four letter word Um, intelligent and targeted communication, Um, you know, using data to inform where they're spending their time, who they're talking about knowing what advisors want before they want it. Um, It's really, really important. Um, The other thing I'll note about this, Nate, and I think you can probably appreciate this is sort of this institutionalization of retail. Um, and and what I mean by that is the ability to gain access. You, you said it earlier, right? That platform placement, the ability to gain access to the advisor community has become more and more challenging. Um, it just gets more complicated as we see more active ETFs coming to market, which I can tell you from the conversations I'm having, that's just picking up exponentially. And so what, what folks aren't considering is how you gain access To those advisors? How do you gain access to those buyers? The decisions on placement and allocations are in the hands of fewer and fewer people, whether it's home office research teams or large RIAs, wealth management advisors. That institutionalization of retail and importance of access, I can't underscore enough, and how it's changing Um, the, the landscape of ETF distribution, I think fundamentally forever. Going
2: forward. Well, it's so interesting uh, on platform access. I actually saw a, a tweet yesterday from Alpha Architects, Ryan Curlin, who who's, he's mm-hmm. been on the podcast before. He said platform access has never been more difficult in the history of ETFs, yeah. which I thought was interesting. Of course, they're, you know, an ETF issuer. They have some really interesting products on the market around value and momentum. And, you know, to hear them talk about how difficult it is, I think, raises an eyebrow. Um, Jillian, we, we always say this when you're on the podcast. I think you and I could have a conversation for hours around all of this. But one thing I do want to ask you about, I think you were reading my mind, was model portfolios. Yeah. Because last time you were on the podcast, I wanted to talk about this. And I think we, we ran out of time. Surprise, surprise. But model portfolios can be an enormous distribution channel for ETF issuers. And I'm not sure if you saw this, but actually last week, the Financial Times had a wonderful piece on this topic, and they were specifically talking about how big of a distribution channel this is for for BlackRock and iShares ETFs. But can you talk more about the importance of model portfolios from an ETF issuer
0: standpoint? absolutely. I think it's a huge part of commercialization strategies for issuers, um, particularly some of the larger asset managers, traditional asset managers that are coming into the market. Uh, I think you're going to see it be a large part of their commercialization strategy, whether it be um, their own multi-asset teams or some of the home office platform. Um, but I think it's a way, if we think about some of the retail advisors out there, they may not feel equipped to make decisions on buying individual ETFs, but they certainly are equipped. And they're consumers of ETF model portfolios. Um, today, they were consumers of mutual fund portfolio, model portfolios as well, and we're seeing that shift um, to the ETFs as the core anchors of those model portfolios for a host of reasons, the reasons we all love ETFs, right? The, the cost, the, the, uh, the exposures, the ease of use, et cetera. Um, but it's something that I've, I remain keenly focused on at Flex um, and thinking about ways that we can work with our clients in that vein, um, because it is a way to help commercialize strategies that's not necessarily hand-to-hand combat. Um, right, and, and so it becomes a really important commercialization strategy for issuers of all sizes, um, both at the home office level as well as at the, the asset manager level so for some of the larger firms. Um, so I think it is going to change uh, and accelerate ETF adoption, because um, it's not just about new issuers or new um, types of clients that are buying ETFs. It's about new ways they're buying ETFs, and model portfolios remain a huge part of that, Um You know, one thing, Nate, before we hop off, I know we are running short on time. I think you mentioned my work with women in ETFs. And one thing that I think is um, really important to note as it relates to the changing face of distribution is just the increase in women in sales roles. Um, You know, as we were talking just previously about how things have changed, Mm -hmm. you know, that move to a more virtual uh, distribution Um, has really increased the number of women that we're seeing welcomed into sales roles, which previously may have not been approachable for them. If they try to, you know, um, work life balance, if you will. And and so I've been excited to see the increase in women in these roles. I actually wrote a piece for it months back for ETF.com. Um, and I, I think it's important and I'd be remiss not to mention it because the work that we do with women ETFs is certainly quite special to me and that's something that we've seen and remain really excited about um, that I think is going to continue to be something we see as the face of distribution in the ETF industry changes.
2: No, it's a great point and I do think you know the ETF space as a whole has tried to be more open, certainly from a diversity standpoint. Point, uh, But but clearly, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think it, it's fantastic hearing that uh, be, because it's needed just across financial services in particular. But um, Jillian, real quick on, on the model portfolios. Yeah, you, you know, obviously, for home offices and broker dealers, um, I, I think they like that because maybe it, it minimizes the due diligence necessary by the end advisor. I think for RIAs, it's this outsourced uh, investment management, right, where they can then focus on on clients and, and building businesses. And so I think that's, that's where the benefit is. And that Financial Times piece that I mentioned uh, earlier, I mean, look, they said BlackRock has set a goal for half of its U.S. ETF flows yeah. to come from advisor models. And they said about a third of the flows come from models right now, which was just mind boggling to me. They also had a data point that just the model portfolio market overall is expected to grow from four trillion last year to ten trillion in the next five years. Just to show people how big of a, a, a you know, potential distribution channel this is. Before I let you go, the one question I, I do have here, though, is: Do you see any potential conflicts of interest with model portfolios? Like, even with somebody uh, like I, I don't know Vanguard, if Vanguard offers model portfolios that are loaded up with with Vanguard ETFs, are they operating as a fiduciary here? You, you know, is that in the best interest of clients? I, 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 any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think it is ultimately up to the advisor, right? I think you're going to see, we are seeing adoption of proprietary and third-party models, Mm -hmm. right? So I think even the the large asset managers recognize that advisors value the diversification inside the model, right? And even if they could construct a 100% proprietary model, there is value being placed on third-party strategies in there. And so, you know, it does provide ability for um, the larger asset managers to incorporate their own product um, and as well as third-party product. Now, what becomes challenging is for some of the smaller issuers um, who who are being placed in there in these models, you know, frankly, the the ability to charge on models is, is, is decreasing meaningfully, right? And so the larger asset managers are able to reap the benefit of the expense ratio, um, but that's a little more challenging for some of the smaller issuers. So it is becoming more and more of a challenge as we think about constructing the models. But there is a real value being placed on third party. So while we do see proprietary models coming to market, um, advisors are telling us with a lot of their flows um, that they do value, at least in some part, third party within those models.
2: Well, Jillian, we will have to leave it there. I I really do think we could talk about this stuff for hours. uh, (laughs) But, you know, I always enjoy connecting. Thank you for joining me.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
2: That was Jillian Del Signore, head of ETFs and indexing at Flex. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank our sponsors, NASDAQ and Invesco. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate NateGeraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by SIBO's Laura Morrison She's going to explain their role in the ETF ecosystem and also discuss some of the latest ETF trends uh, she's seen. And then Valkyrie's Stephen McClurg is going to talk Bitcoin ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.